0: Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, A military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it.
1: Our guest today is Sarah Gare. Sarah is a suicide loss survivor and master's level clinician with 24 years experience in the field of mental health care. She's also an author, a speaker, and a thought leader. Sarah has worked as a clinician, served on crisis teams, worked with FEMA, first responders, military veterans, and much more. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Linda and I are both very excited to have you on to hear about your career and mental health, what you've learned from working with first responders, veterans, and others. So I'm sure that uh, that we have plenty to talk about. If uh, Before we get into all that, if you could take a moment and introduce yourself to our audience, please.
2: Sure. Um, thank you so much, Jay and Linda, for inviting me. It's really an honor um, to be part of your program and the amazing things that you're trying to do. So I'm really grateful to be here. Um, In my life outside of work, I am the mom of two amazing kids. Uh, My son is a United States Navy submariner. I'm very, very proud of him. Uh, And my daughter is a student at UConn. Uh, I'm also the proud mother of three Bernese Mountain Dogs, which if you do the math is over 300 pounds of dog uh, (laughs) in my house. Uh, I have a history of riding Harleys. I gave that up to go back to my other love, which is riding horses. And major confession, uh, my mother's not happy with me today because I bought myself a little red sports car. Wow. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. I love that. <laughs> that is a manual transmission, by the way.
3: Whoa. What 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 little type of little red sports car did you get?
2: I got a Toyota GR86. Uh, And I I did that because my travels around the state of Massachusetts have my Jeep at over 140,000 miles. And uh, I didn't want another great big car, but I need a big car for the dogs. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like the best thing I could do was buy a smaller car that was really fun to drive. um, And that way, hopefully keep my Jeep alive longer so I can continue to cart dogs around.
3: Yeah. And why not? If you're driving all over Massachusetts, why not have a bit of fun at the same time, right? That, that was my theory. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Hey, we all need a little something like that too, right? I love yeah. this. So Sarah, um, so you're, you're a, a trauma clinician, right? For a long time. Um, and we're going to talk, we're going to have a great conversation with you. We're so, we're, I am. I'm very, I'm very excited. I can't speak for Jay, but I'm so excited to get in and, and start to get into the meat of conversation with you. Um, was this something that you always wanted to do, or you want to take us back a little bit? No, she's not in, She's not in ahead for the listeners. Um, share with us if you want to take us into that journey um, of the beginning or before.
2: Yeah, and I actually don't consider myself a trauma clinician per se. Um, I don't. I don't provide direct service. I haven't done direct service in a long time. Um, what I, what I am is I have a master's level. I have worked as a clinician, um, in several different types of environments, and I also work in trauma response. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's sort of the background, but you know, I found myself at a community college many years ago and had no idea what I wanted to do. Of course, I mean, I, does anybody really know what they want to do? Yeah. Uh, and I had the most amazing intro to psychology teacher ever. I still remember his name. And because of him, um, you know, I just took more and more and more classes. And then I got my internship to work at a group home with kids. Um, And between when I was offered the job, but before it had started, uh, I lost my best friend to suicide. She was my third friend in about three years to die by suicide. And I called the job up and said, I don't think I can take it. I don't think I can do this. I don't think that that I can come and work with kids who are suffering when I've just lost my best friend who had been 21 years old for six days. And my mother, who's a very brilliant woman, even though she doesn't know it, said, Sarah, you can always quit later. Just give it a try. I think you'll regret it if you don't try. So begrudgingly, I took my mother's advice. Just so you know, the smartest thing I've ever done in my life is take my mother's advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I started the job. And I loved the kids. I absolutely loved working with the kids. What I didn't love was the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I didn't love, you know, the, the ways in which the kids were being punished because of the things the parents had done. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I would be happier working in an uh, outreach type of setting where kids were still in their homes. So I left the, the group home setting and went to the outreach setting in Holyoke, Massachusetts, uh, and you know, I'm very young. I'm 21 years old myself at the time. And what I did not anticipate is while it was great that the kids were home for the holidays and, you know, sleeping in their own beds. Now I'm in a position where I have to drop kids off to homes where I believe they're being abused. Okay. Wow. And, and very quickly, two years or so, I realize this isn't for me either. So, right. Because I'm, I'm, Wicked smart. Aren't we all wicked smart when we're that age? Yeah. So then I decide um, that what I'm going to do is I'm going to work with adults instead. This is all going to be so much better if I work with adults because at least they have some control over their own lives. And so I get a job at a place called Phoenix House in Springfield, Massachusetts, which was a a long-term, year-long drug treatment program. And probably a month into the job, I realized that the only difference between – the folks I had in that program and the kids I had worked with was these people were older in age. Um, but once upon a time they were the same kids. Yeah. And so anyway, long story short, um, I ended up, you know, deciding to go back to school. I uh, believe it or not, I was the help on the home front coordinator for the Patriot guard riders. Uh, I had been really struck by a comment. My grandmother who was a coast guard, veteran during um, World War II era had made about the protesters going to the soldiers' funeral. So it prompted me to join the Patriot Guard. Um, but I realized that if my husband couldn't go, it meant that I had to drive a car, and I felt really silly driving a car while everybody else was on motorcycles. So I said to my husband, I think, <laughs> I, think I want to learn how to ride a motorcycle. And he laughed at me. Wow. So Linda, yeah. guess how long, Jay? Guess how long before I was signed up for that Rider's Edge course? Um, so that was where my Harley my motorcycle days, my Harley days began. And very quickly I was asked to be um the public relations officer for the American Legion riders in my local area. And I got really involved and I learned so much. Most of the, most of the folks with us were um were Vietnam veterans. We had some Iraq and Afghanistan vets, but mostly Vietnam. And they just they just touched my heart. They, they moved my soul. And uh, Mm. but I also saw the ways in which everything that happened to them stayed with them. And it was working with them. That's made me say, I want to go back and get my master's in this. I want to be able to really make a difference. Wow! So I went and got my master's degree. I didn't do my homework. So when I graduated $60,000 in debt, I found out that the VA did not accept the degree I had. Wow. And that's how I ended up working in an inner city mental health clinic. Um, I had to go sort of back to square one, but you know, I'm grateful for all these things that seemed like devastating losses and, and in, and in some ways they really were devastating losses, but I also realized that they opened other doors mm. and have made me that much more skilled at the work that I do.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Uh So, and I became a suicide prevention specialist totally by accident. Um, I had worked with a trauma center during the trauma response for the tornadoes here in Western and Central Mass in 2011. Mm. This is how old I'm getting. Um, (laughs) And when that program ended, I really was so impressed with the people at that trauma center that I begged them to keep me. But the only job they had was a suicide prevention job um, focused on men in the middle years. Wow. So I took it thinking I'd do it for a couple of years, but um, you know, I got into working with the fire service and, you know, just loved it. And so that's a long version of how I got here, but I've been really lucky to be working with first responders since about 2000 and well, 2011 officially, but um, in, in suicide prevention since 2012.
3: Wow. That's absolutely amazing. I, I loved hearing that background story of it um one thing that hit me when uh, i hope you don't mind if i bring this up with you when you were talking about um you know working with the kids and um you know sort of stayed with you that these kids were hurting right and um and then later on you went to work with older kids feeling that that might be better but then you realized that these older kids were those younger kids at one time. And and the words that you used was, I quickly discovered that this wasn't for me either. Um, and I, I got, like, ugh, that, that started to hit, hit with me. And I was like, mm. there was something that stayed with her there for that reason she's saying that. Like, that wasn't for me either. Um, but it was for that reason. Like, was it that you still weren't happy with um, the the way the system was run? Or was it that you were hurting for the kids that were staying with you and that, that you weren't able to let it go at the end of the day, you were holding on to their pain?
2: Yes. All of that. All you know, that- our, our system here in Massachusetts, and, and I don't say this lightly, we we are doing amazing things and we are constantly trying to make things better. Um, And our system is still broken in a lot of places. Yeah. And, you know, I, I intentionally do talk about the kids in those residential programs and those outreach programs because most people don't know about them. Yeah. Um, and they're the same kids who are going to end up with substance use problems. They're the same kids who are going to end up in jail. They're the same kids who are going to end up dying by suicide. And I truly believe that if we really put the effort into doing better by them when they're in first grade, second grade, fifth grade, eighth grade, yeah, we could greatly reduce... I'm not saying alleviate entirely, but greatly reduce right. the number of of tragic stories that we have yeah uh,
3: i i we totally agree with you I mean I, we just interviewed an s r o officer um from the town of Hingham. He talked about that, and I, you know the dare programs that were um available like years ago, my kids were like um you know made aware of tobacco and alcohol, right? And, and those times, and in, in that's how old I am, talking about that stuff. And he was talking about fentanyl on, and opioids with kids. Um, so it's very different, but they still do the DARE program in the town of Hingham. And, uh, you know, we talked about, like, the uh, the fatality um, numbers or, or percentage. Um, they haven't had one in, and he said... Maybe 15 years. I think so, yeah. Um, and he sort oh. of looks at that, you know, compared to other towns where maybe it's five to seven. And, um, and, and other towns are not doing the DARE program. But I think what you're saying is, is that if we do right by them in first and second grade and third grade and eighth grade and, and while they're still in school, there's, we're, we're bringing awareness, you know what I mean? And at least that's something rather than nothing. Totally agree with you. For sure, yeah. um, and then getting into um, you know the first responders and how they uh, came about. I believe that part led you in that direction for where you are meant to be. Jay, you want to chime in? I can see you like biting at the bit there.
1: Well, I'm I'm thinking I I'm I'm thinking um, if I can go back to where you mentioned losing uh, losing your best friend to suicide, and if it's okay to talk a little bit about that. I, in preparation for this interview, I I. Was reading some things about you. I watched some of your TED talks. They're all incredible. And uh, something that that um, really I found very thought provoking was was this concept of uh, soul exhaustion and forgiveness that, that mm. you spoke about. And you talked about uh, being at, at at dinner after a day hiking and this uh, state of of overwhelmment, and then recognizing that 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 was an emotional state that you you had been in in the past. Um, after that loss. I was wondering if you could explain uh, explain some things about uh, soul exhaustion and how forgiveness fits into that, um, whatever you, you feel like sharing.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up.
2: Soul exhaustion is a concept that I was so afraid to start talking about, um, and I, I was really lucky because I had some superstars in the field of suicide prevention, and I sort of you know i approached them and i was afraid to say the word soul and um they looked at me and they said this is i love this this Mm. is brilliant
1: yeah
2: um you know what i really was looking for jay and i've been looking for for years you know i think i'm really concerned about how reliant we're becoming on the medical model that you know so many people feel that everything that's in their life is a diagnosis. It's the anxiety it's bipolar disorder. It's, and, and those things exist. I want to be very clear. It's not that they don't exist. They yeah. do, yeah. but I feel like we don't talk enough about what happens to the sort of the core of who we are mm. because of life experiences. Um, and so there's all different life experiences, like, you know, those kids that were in my programs, yeah, right? Yeah. Here they are. They're, they're kids who've been taken away from their homes. They're kids who had been abused. They've been neglected. They've been bullied at school. They had lost family to incarceration and overdoses. I mean, they would had all this trauma and they're getting diagnosed bipolar. Yeah. And I always kind of felt like, how is that the obvious answer? Right? Because the obvious answer to me is that, you know, that this is all because of their life experiences but they didn't fit into that pretty box of PTSD. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so they weren't getting that trauma diagnosis. So I have wanted for many years to have a way to talk about, you know, how we're impacted as human beings by these experiences that wasn't pathologizing, that wasn't medical. Um, and like you said, Jay, it all happened after a trip to the white mountains. Uh, my husband and I took the dogs and I do tell the story in my, my TEDx, but, um, I made the mistake of trusting the internet and I, I was looking for hikes where I could take the dogs and it said short and sweet New Hampshire hike. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, sh- I should have been suspicious because the website was hiker at heart.
1: Uh,
2: so, but I'm like short and sweet. This sounds perfect. So we pack the dogs up and we do the lonesome lake hike which I have now found out since then, by the way, is one of the, I don't know, 16 or 18, you know, like real hikes in, so we go up, um, (laughs) and I mean, it was pure stubbornness, but it was also these really happy people coming down the mountain who were like, you have to keep going, it's so, and they were happy and they were chipper, (laughs) and so I thought, well, it must make you happy to get there. Um, And also, I don't think I wanted to admit to my husband that I didn't want to, that I was too tired. Yeah. So I get all the way back down the mountain, and you know we get up there. It is beautiful, by the way. It really is. It, it's it's just stunning. Um, the the top of the mountain is a lake, and and you would never know that driving by. You can't see it, um, and so it really is. It, it's it's magical. But I get back down. Um, you know, I mean, I I'm so tired. I have to actually pick my legs up by my pants to get them into the car. Um, so we get back, and we both just ball into the couch and we sort of <laughs> hem and haw you know do we really want to try to go out to dinner but it's our last night and you know I think we're too tired and but it's our last night and we saved our favorite restaurant for our last night so we finally decide we're gonna go right <laughs> and I'm sitting there at the common common man common man and I'm looking at these people who are, you know, laughing and they're toasting each other and they're so happy and I hate them. <laughs> I, oh I, I'm, I'm like wishing them to disappear. Yeah. And and I'm on the, I start, I start to like choke up. Because um, you were I'm, so tired. I was so exhausted. And I oh. thought to myself, oh this oh my is God. the story Jay's talking about. I thought to myself... I have never been this exhausted.
1: Yeah.
2: (sighs) And then I realized there was something, you know, almost right away. I said to myself, hold on. There's something a little bit familiar about this feeling. And so I'm sitting at the table, you know, trying not to put my head down in, in my, uh, I think beef stew is what I ate. I don't remember, but, um, you know, and I finally, it's kind of like when you get a, you catch a smell and you're trying to place it and you, and you realize like, Oh, yeah. that smells like grandma's house around the holidays. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, it yeah. all of a sudden it clicks. Yeah, um, And that's what happened. All of a sudden it clicked. And I realized this is very similar to how I felt after my best friend died by suicide. Wow. That, that the fatigue, you know, and, and of course my brain then said, yeah, but this is physical and that was something else. That, that, right. So I'm like trying to think of how to describe it. And that's when my brain said that was soul exhaustion. Yeah. Wow. So that's the long winded TEDx story that you're talking about, Jay. Wow. Um, and since then I have traveled literally around the world. Yep. I have been interviewing people, um, you know, on the idea of the soul. What, Cause I don't even know what the soul is. I'm not clear on that. Uh, and it turns out nobody is. Right. I wanted, That's what's really fun about this. Um, but Everybody kind of understands it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and we even did some research. My, my very dear friend, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, and I did some research looking at um, the ways in which suicide in the workplace impacts the workers. And one of the questions that we asked is, do you believe in the soul? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had done a previous very small survey on that where I got that about 85% of people said yes. Yes this was a much larger um, response and we got, uh, I believe it was 90% of people who responded said, yes, they do believe in the soul. Um, So it turns out that this seems to be a concept that people really connect to when they hear it. Linda, I'm wondering as a law survivor, what your, what your thoughts is about the term soul exhaustion. I
3: have so much going on in my head right now. I mean, he knows, um, I do believe in soul exhaustion um and i you know i feel for me uh, i mean this is my own description of my soul it's a a bigger part of me um um it's a it's me it's a the better part of me right that is knows what's best for me and when you you're exhausted you forget that there's another part of you that you can dig a little bit deeper right to get you out of whatever you're feeling. But, yeah, as a suicide loss survivor, um, for me, you know, I I didn't reach into that sort of feeling right away. Um, it sort of came more, if I can describe it for a listener, more, more of a, like an, a spiritual awakening, put it that way. Mm. And um, so, uh, for, I mean, for me, blocking out... Um, the feeling that are the emotions. That's what I did at the beginning. So I wasn't letting myself recognize, um, what I was feeling. I, I understood I was angry. Um, and I was sad and I, you know, all of those, um, questions, why, 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 um, all of those were there, but, um, and I recognized what they were there, but I started to push them back, if if that makes sense to you. So um, yeah, and do- dove into work, 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 and work and more work, um, until it sort of you know I th- I think it there came to a stage where um, I realized that there, you know there was a shame, there was a stigma with that. I think as a, for a family losing a first responder. Um and and not only a first responder but uh, a family member to suicide and and that stigma was definitely there at the beginning. I didn't want to mm. didn't want to mention the 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 word suicide. If you know, I'm I'm I deal with the public all the time, and um you know they if people knew our regulars knew that we had lost um a family member, and I wouldn't say that we would lost them to suicide at the beginning. And then yeah. when starting to talk to first responders who are coming in and, and sharing with me, you know, struggles, and I totally realized, wow, so many of these people are struggling and not talking yeah. about how they're feeling, and um, and I I realized I'm the only way that it's going to help them and help me is to talk about it. Um, yeah. And 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 that shame left. So I haven't stopped talking since then. But I think definitely um, that started when I started talking. Um, that's when I started started digging in a little bit deeper of about how I was feeling. You know what I mean? And yeah, it was definitely soul exhaustion um, for sure.
2: Well, you and you actually just you said something really well you said a couple really important things there um in the context of soul exhaustion which is you talked about the sadness and the anger yeah right and when we're that sad and and we're that angry that's not who we are Yeah. yeah and so 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 you have this experience where you know, the essence of who I am as a person, deep down inside, I don't want to be that angry person. I don't think that's right. who I really am. I don't want to be this sad person. I don't think that's who I really am. So when you have these emotions, um, which, you know, there's there's other types of grief that elicit those, you know, violence, um, overdoses, like, but suicide, um, in part because of what you also said, Linda, which is the why, 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 why. Yeah which in the suicide prevention field, um, we refer to as the tyranny of hindsight, which is, is really a hallmark of suicide loss is mm-hmm. going through that process. Yeah. And so it's, it's all of those things that drain us of who we are, right. Cause when we're sad and we're angry and we're impatient with people that we care about and, um, we become more and more detached from who yeah. we really are as a person and who we really want to be and there's a lot of similarities between what you and I have been through as law survivors and what our first responders go through yeah because yeah. their constant exposure to the worst of humankind it can yeah. bring out that you know that desensitization the the lack of compassion the anger the cynical, you know sort of perspective of people in the community that they care about yeah and so they often also start to feel as though they're not the same person anymore
1: yeah mm-hmm. now,
2: the yeah. other thing that you said that i just want to name it because it's really important you you talked about how talking about it right talking about um losing your first responder to suicide but in my language what, what i say is well she found um, she found soul care in me- making meaning out yeah. of this loss. Yeah. So you took this tragedy and this pain and this anger and this sorrow, and you found a way to make it all matter.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, to, you know, myself and Jay have talked about it. You know, so many times. You know, of um, taking your energy. I know I have so much love to give. Right. And, and so much to be able to give. So deciding, uh, sitting and wallowing and being angry is not my personality. You know, as you said, that's not who I am, right? But what can I do to have a purpose and turn this tragedy into something that I can help others? And that's right. fortunately, you know, I'm very fortunate that I'm in an environment where I see a lot of first responders every day. And I have an opportunity to be able to talk to them, so mm. it was like, "Wow, did God?" Po- I uh, when I opened up the cafe seven years ago, and you know, you're you're trying to figure out how you're going to run this business and make it a business. I, I had said to God many times, um, "I don't know why you have me here," but I don't. I know you have me here for a reason. I just don't know it yet. I don't know what what that is, but now I know, and yeah. um, I know that all those little pieces that have I've been shown um over the years and even the loss of Alex um it, it was is for a reason to to have this purpose I just didn't know it yet and um and I feel very very strongly that this is part of my soul of who I am and why I'm meant to be here if that makes sense to you
2: it does it does yeah. and I, I think you know for me um sort of the place that, that I came to is that I had to make meaning out of my best friend's death that right. I didn't feel that there was any inherent value in her dying by suicide, that I had to do something to make meaning of that. Um, you know, and it's also part of my way of holding honor guard for her yeah. because I have this feeling that, and, and I'm not saying it's true, but it feels to me like if I'm not out there doing this and and using you know, my experiences as a loss survivor that she'll, she'll be forgotten. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And there's so many
3: so, first responders too, right? I mean, there's so many first responders suicides. Um yeah. And so, yeah. And there's so, so I, we know we're not the only family that is going through the pain and the pain, as you know, as a, a suicide loss survivor, the pain doesn't go away. You learn how to live through it and, and be able to carry on and and use it as put your energy into sort of growing right growing yourself i've realized how strong i mean through all of this i never realized how strong i am and i know i'm a very very strong person now um you know and i if you can get through such a tragedy well then you know bring it on (laughs) bring on whatever whatever else um is out there because we can get through those hard traumas and just like a first responder, we can get through those. We can heal. We can heal. We don't have to stay in our trauma or live. It doesn't have to be a life sentence. Um, we can, we can heal from it. And, um, this has helped me heal for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and the other thing Jay that you had asked about when you asked about the soul exhaustion piece, you, you asked about, um, the forgiveness. Yes. And, and the story that I tell in, in that TEDx that you were referring to is about finding forgiveness for my dad. Yeah. Um, but forgiveness, so, that, so there's lots of things when I talk about soul care, which is different than self-care. I feel like self-care um, has just been used so much that people really relate it to either very physical things, like making sure you exercise and drink water. All of them are important. Or kind of superficial things. Um, I had a participant in one of my workshops say, if one more person tells me to take a bubble bath and light a candle, I'm going to and scream. Yeah. Um, yeah, You know, so I don't, I say self-care is like the bare minimum to live. Yeah. Soul care, soul care is taking care of the deepest parts of who we are as a human being. And meaning making is one of the areas I talk a lot about. And the other area is forgiveness. Yeah. Um. And there's three different types of forgiveness that I look at. One is finding forgiveness for people who have harmed us. You know, and I think for first responders in particular, they've been harmed by all different things, Um, you know, just by the nature of their work. But sometimes they've been harmed by the institutional um, administrative types of policies, Yeah, Uh, you know, so there's all sorts of things. So finding forgiveness for other people. Um, but also asking for forgiveness. We all make mistakes, no matter how much I really want to be here on the, your show and say, Oh, I'm a perfect person. I never hurt anybody's feelings. I never do any. It's not true. I make mistakes. Yeah. I say the wrong things sometimes, or I get frustrated and I, and I react poorly to something. Um, and so being able to say, I'm sorry, I, I made that mistake. I'm sorry that I did it. I'm not going to make any excuses and I'm going to try really hard not to do that again. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the last and the hardest one I think for most of us is learning to forgive ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that little voice that's in the back of our head, um, you know, and other people go, no, 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 really you're, you, you do a great thing. And that little voice says, Oh, that's because they don't really know you. They don't really know the darkness that you're in, or they don't really know, um, you know, the reaction that you felt or, or whatever the case is. And so those are just two of the areas, um, that I'm, I'm looking at a lot. I'm actually writing right now. I've brought together this amazing group of humans. If either of you are interested, I'm always taking new people. Mm. Uh, and we are writing a soul care, a soul exhaustion and soul care workbook. Nice. So wow. wow. That people can, can take this and go through it. And, um, you know, start to really look at that deeper part of themselves. I love that. Love
3: that. It's definitely needed. And and again, you know, it's sort of like um, learning about yourself a little bit more, right? Digging deeper, right? Just digging that little bit deeper and finding out a little bit about yourself, you know, a bit more. And I love that sense of self, right? Um, Yeah. Love everything about that.
0: Do you offer... Thank you.
3: Do you offer... um, for our listeners, you know, someone who's listening who might say, wow, this sounds great. I want to participate in this type of thing. Do you offer workshops or um, trainings? So share with us about that.
2: I do. Um, those are separate from what I have uh I don't think we mentioned it yet. I do have a um, contract with the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health, which I love. It is one of my favorite parts of the work I do. Um, And that is to offer several different trainings to Massachusetts law enforcement. So I do um, toxic stress. I do suicide prevention trainings, and I also do full day psychological first aid trainings. Mm -hmm. And all of that's funded through the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. It is I say free, yes, you still have to pay your officers to attend. So it's not completely free, um, but the training itself is no charge to the department. Um, so that's part of the work that I do. My soul exhaustion and soul care, I do keynotes. Um, I actually did one for the American Association of Suicidology. I did a plenary for them. So I spoke about soul exhaustion in front of 1,200 I think there were twelve hundred people. Wow. Um, it may have been less because it was early in the morning, so everyone may not have come. but, um, wow. and I do do um, workshops. My favorite workshops for soul exhaustion are with suicide loss survivors, but I will do them for anyone. Wow. So where are these are where
3: will these be where will our listeners be able to find um, you know, upcoming workshops and stuff like that? Where will they be able to find that information? and be able to register. Tell us all about that.
2: So um, usually people have to call me and host the event, but I actually, probably by the time this is aired, actually, I will have posted, um, I'm doing a presentation for the Ohio suicide prevention, and it's going to be on my website under events with an Eventbrite link that people can register for that event there. Um, Otherwise you probably have to reach out to me directly and think about bringing it to, to your community. Wow.
3: So, um, so like a department can do soul, um, your, your, um, soul care, um, workshop, you can, a department can do it or no.
2: So soul care, soul exhaustion and soul care is not one of the ones that I have, uh, formally had approval, but I am, would imagine that if enough departments thought this would be really helpful, we may be able to convince the Department of Mental Health that they'd like to
3: yeah. put that in my
2: scope of work. I so, haven't, I haven't had lots of folks ask for it, so I haven't pushed for that. Yeah, um, but if but, people were really interested, I would certainly make a push. Yeah, hmm.
3: so they can do QPR and um, like psychological first aid. And, they okay. can do psychological
2: first aid, which is an eight-hour training. Yeah. Um, they can do QPR, which is generally a two hour training and they can do the toxic stress, which is also a two hour training. Yeah. I think Jay, wow, that's-
3: I think Jay and myself were, were actually set up to do a train to trainer. We were registered with, I think you are going to be teaching and I'm bummed now that we missed out on it. Um, for the QPR, um, trainers oh, wow. with, um, through like Plymouth County suicide coalition, um, we're very involved with Jenny and Paul, and um, and uh, we they 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 got us trained in in mental health first aid youth. Um, so they said, do this one first, and then there'll be another opportunity for you to come up and do the QPR one. But so we look forward to to doing that in the future. Maybe it'll be yourself
2: that's doing it. It could be. There's not a lot of master trainers, so um, you you got like a fifty fifty chance in Massachusetts that it's me. Oh, perfect! Well, we'll look
3: forward to that in the future for sure. You chiming in or me? Um,
1: yeah, I can. I, I think uh, now that you bring up the the youth mental health first aid, I think it's so interesting when you start looking at mental health uh, the the crossover between what's what's relative relative to children and where I see it in the lives of first responders and others and and uh, and adults. And I was reading something about the that you had you had written about the three lies that we tell children, and one of those things uh, was sensitivity. And I think you were quoting Winston Churchill, and he he spoke about a change, and uh, I don't know if it was environmental stimuli, but paying attention to to those changes, and how that's mm-hmm. where you know, uh, in essence, defines sensitivity. And it got me thinking about first responders in the way that we sometimes can maybe become uh soul exhausted, right? I didn't know the term at, at the time, but um but I think it certainly applies because in our environments it's so important that that we pay attention to the changes that are happening around us. And you know, you can look at it from a police officer's side or a firefighter's in very clear terms like a building fire and that uh, you know, rapidly changing, developing environment with threats around you and um, you know, I, I guess to pick one example, we could look at a drug overdose right you're in you're in that environment, and it's so important um, if you're going to be good at your job as a first responder to be very aware of what's going mm-hmm. on in in an overdose situation, which is a very common occurrence as we all know um, you know not just i mean there's obviously drug activity what what threats are around, and then beyond that is there uh, child abuse or neglect is their elder abuse what has to be documented later so that there's so much going on in in that environment and and we as a culture are very sensitive to that um, yeah. but in order to do that it seems to me that we have to overlook our our inward sensitivity right mm-hmm. in order to to do that um it, it almost happens by nature that that uh, that through that process, we overlook or stuff down or ignore any feelings that we might have about the fact that there are people suffering. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't judge that. It's, it's almost necessary in order to be effective in those environments. You have to navigate the crisis and everything else that, that's going on in front of you. But it did get me thinking about the relationship that it, through when you're talking about children, the nature um, or the relationship that first responders have with sensitivity, because we're, in fact, very sensitive. It's just uh, it's unfortunate, often to a degree of, of consequence to ourselves that that we we're not sensitive to our own selves, we're not able to understand it or go through that process. So I was wondering if you could uh, share with us your thoughts on on sensitivity and and where you think um, that applies to first responders, and if you think there's anything we can do as a culture to improve the stigma that does exist within our culture uh, as first responders, in, in terms of uh, you know recognizing the humanness in, in ourselves. I, I love. I
2: mean, I think that was just brilliantly worded. You know, the, the sensitivity that you're talking about where where first responders have it, is, you know, in sort of the language in the mental health field, right? We would call that it's, it's a threat sensitivity. Mm. So, so there is a high sensitivity, but that sensitivity is very specific to looking for a threat right? It's always looking for the threat. And that's part of, I mean, it's absolutely going to be a contributor when we see first responders experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, because hypervigilance and hyperarousal hypervigilance is that, you know, looking for the threat, hyper Mm -hmm. Um, hyperarousal is aroused hyper, right? Um, And both those things make sense because first, I would argue that first responders are already going to score higher than most people would on that scale because just the nature of the job, right? So one of the ways that I demonstrate that, I ask um, all of my first responders, how many of you backed into your parking place? (laughs) (laughs) Why do you do that? Right? Right. Well, they say, well, you know, if they're being honest, they say, oh, so I can get out fast. Mm. Right. And I go, right. But when you go to go to big Y or stop and shop, what percentage of the cars are backed in? Right. It's like three.
0: yeah,
2: It's minimal. Right. And that's just one way to demonstrate that that's already a certain level of hyper arousal and hyper vigilance that you're going to find with first responders. Right. Because I'll say to them, yeah, but you do it at home. So I understand why you do it at work, but why do you back in at home? So you can't, we don't have a switch that can just say, oh, I have to be on high alert, you know, eight hours or 16 hours a day, but then I go home and I can just shut that off. That's not mm-hmm. how our brain is wired. So once you wire it to be at that level of, of hyper, um, you know, vigilance and, and arousal, that's where it's going to stay. So yes, everything that you said in that, um, but here's the thing. I think the sensitivity to threat is high, Mm -hmm. but the sensitivity to emotion is very low. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, in the clinical sort of lingo, which I don't always love, um, it's called desensitization. And this happens for a reason, right? If every time you see something awful, you cry for the next four hours, you can't stay in this job. So you have to find a way to shut off some of that emotion, but similar to not being able to flip the switch with a hypervigilance and arousal, you can't flip the switch with a desensitization. So what ends up happening is not only are you desensitized in these interactions in the community, but you're also desensitized in your relationships with friends and family. You're also desensitized in the way that you look at and treat yourself. So that desensitization also then filters into all areas of your life. And I think, If I'm understanding you correctly, and I think I am, Jay, that's what's happening is we have both this hyper arousal and hyper vigilance to threat. At the same time, we know from the research that we have high rates of desensitization. And this is why first responders get in trouble for the gallows humor. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, non-first responders think like, oh, you know, they're so heartless. They're so cold. They're so that's the desensitization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so to answer your question, um, one of the things that we talk about is, uh, increasing compassion, satisfaction. Hmm. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I see a story about an officer who has to respond to a terrible domestic situation and he realizes that one of the kids, all that kid wants in the whole wide world is a bicycle. And that officer goes and he raises money and he buys that kid a bicycle. Mm-hmm. That's what we call compassion satisfaction, right? So similar to what both Linda and I have done, yeah. where and, and you're doing as well, Jay, where we take this thing that's really awful mm-hmm. and we find a way to do something meaningful in it. So if we can create those opportunities and I worry sometimes with some of the laws that have been passed that we've actually made it harder for officers to find that compassion satisfaction in their work. Um, And and I really, I I think that's a disservice to the officers and our communities. Mm, Uh, So I I hope we can have some systemic changes because when you have those experiences and I'll I'll give you a silly example. I was watching a TikTok uh, where a bunch of officers rescued um, a little girl who'd been kidnapped. Right. And most of them are just trying to, you know, is she okay? Is she okay? Is she okay? Right. And they're obviously very, very upset. And I hear this officer say, get her a towel so she can cover up. That was a very human moment in a very inhumane experience. Right. So he was finding, even in that moment, this satisfaction, this compassion satisfaction. Yes. Right. Um, so he was able to still tap into that emotional sensitivity that's I'm not being judgmental of the other officers yeah but I am saying that the more officers can have those moments of connecting on a really human level um the happier they're believe it or not I believe the happier they're going to be in their work and same with the fire service
3: yeah absolutely absolutely because it's letting them realize what Jay said is that how can we be more sensitive to our own human right Right? and um and those type of things like get a get a towel to cover her up right it's saying i realize let let this person have some dignity right cover her up let cover her up so that she can have some dignity and just that little compassion lets them be human rather than the Mm -hmm. superman
2: Absolutely, and this is why I have um, advocated, and I'm so grateful that DMH has said yes um, to be able to do psychological first aid trainings with law enforcement. Because, you know, what we're teaching them is when they deal with suicide loss survivors, mm. right? They yeah. often leave those those situations feeling like there's nothing I could do for the family. The family was so upset, and we know that when people are in those emotional situations where they feel powerless to help right? That's going to increase the risk of them having longer term challenges. Yeah. Yeah. So by teaching first responders psychological first aid, we're giving them skills in that moment that they can use mm-hmm. that help the survivors, like making sure they're not left alone.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Right? And, and, you know, watching for those body language signs, there someone sitting over there in the corner, um, you know, rocking back and forth, just watching all those little things makes it so important to be able to tap into, what oh, what is this person going to need from me? What can I offer this person in this time of need? Very, very important. I, I am certified in so psychological first aid, so I get what you're talking about. It's it, Yeah, it's a powerful thing, and I love that departments are able to um, take advantage of that and have them trained, for sure. I think that a lot of, um, you know, if there's a response to a suicide and a, a police officer is on scene... Um, I think you know, the comfort, um, what comfort can they possibly offer a family um, who has lost uh, a loved one, um, when they're also thinking in their head all the paperwork they have to do. And, and all yeah. the reports that they have to do and, and whatever it is that they have to line up to for the scene and, and, and everything else, right? So, yeah, offering um, comfort to the family and support is is very, very, very important for sure. That was one thing yeah. that was definitely missing in in, in our loss uh, at the time. I mean, the department wasn't very supportive, although his Alex's buddies was, um, you know, supportive they were coming in but the administration level you know yeah not even a call to say I'm sorry for your loss so um yeah yeah. so that part gets missing
2: just so you and your listeners know um I'm also again through the department of mental health I'm I'm approved to consult with departments when there has been um the death of a a, the suicide death of a police officers and I can help them know how to reach out to the family right we know um that you're always better off reaching out to the family they do it they they get scared they they don't want to invade privacy they don't they you know and often after suicide there's so much blame that the department often thinks like oh the family's gonna blame us there, there's just so much that can happen yeah. so part of the work i'm i'm allowed to do is help the department you know because most of them don't ha- even though we lose all too many yeah. first responders. Yeah. The average department doesn't necessarily have experience handling that until it happens to them. Yeah, and then absolutely. sadly, Linda, they often don't handle it well. Yeah. So, um, you know, I am available for Massachusetts to consult with departments to help them, but absolutely we know that reaching out to the family is is very very important and following the family's lead. So, if the family wants um you know, honor guard, if the family wants it to be known that this person has died by suicide, if whatever the family wants is what should be respected. Yeah. Um, and those conversations should, should be happening.
3: Yeah, they, uh, absolutely, they should be. And I think that, you know, again, like what you said, Sarah, I totally agree with you. I think a lot of departments, unless it has happened before and they've been through it, they, they don't know how to respond. Um, be, uh, you know, they don't know how to react or you know, yeah. I I'd, I'd much prefer them to be able to, you know, be proactive in situations. You know, these guys are going now. We're hiring these guys. We're putting them out on the street, right? And they're in the job, and they're going to experience traumatic incidents. And um, and it's it's not that then you know some some of the first responders out there might you know might not show traumatic s- symptoms. Um, but they are going to. It's a matter of time, right? It's uh, they accumulate over time, um, right. and it's just a matter of maybe something just might hit them at a, a on a different note, and and it sets them on a on a whole different path. And um, so, yeah, offering um, support for officers, especially when they know they're, they're in the job of a, a trauma job, right? Um, And that's why um,
2: I don't unfortunately have funding to work with the fire service anymore, even though that's where I've spent most of my career um, and I love them. You know, it's also saying that, look, these acute stress reactions are normal, right? It is very normal that you're going to go home and not be able to sleep. It is normal that you're going to go home and have nightmares. It's normal that you're going to close your eyes and feel like you're back there, right? These are things that happen and they're normal. And we need to talk about that because what happens is when we don't prepare someone for those reactions and then they have them, their anxiety level goes even higher because they didn't expect it and they think there's something wrong with them. Yeah. So then they get more and more distressed and the more distressed they get, it's just like pouring more fuel on the central nervous system fire, right? Mm -hmm. And so it builds and it builds. I love SISM, SISM is great and we're doing more and more of it and I'm really happy to see that. The one thing that concerns me is that, and this is true in all trauma response, this is not unique to SISM, um, so it's not a criticism of SISM. They're really good at showing up in the first week But we need to be showing up at six months. We need to be showing up at a year. We need to keep showing up because in the first week, half of the people that responded to that tragedy are going to be having acute stress reactions. What I need to know is who's still having them at three months. Who's still having them at six months. Absolutely.
3: Hallelujah. Uh,
2: Yes. So, so for me, and that's why I do the training that I do because I want people to realize like, these reactions, to have these reactions in the immediate aftermath is totally normal, right? But if at three months or six months you're still having them, it's time for us to call on-site. It's time for us to reach out to McLean's, right? It, it's because it can be progressive, and right. there's lots of good things that can be done. EMDR is showing excellent results. There's lots of things that can be done, and but it's like any other type of injury, We want to catch that injury as early as we can. We want to stop any further injury. Yeah. And then we want to start the physical therapy and whatever we have to do. Right. There are things we can do to help. It's not like, you know, you're in this work and it's just, what's going to happen to you. We have to stop thinking of it that way. Yes. Um, you know, and and some chiefs I've worked with, I had a, an officer, not an officer. I had a first responder, um, you know, he had had a terrible, close family member friend tragedy at the beginning of his his week, um, and then the first shift he worked after that, he went to a, a call that was almost the exact same as the tragedy he had just had in his own life. And you know, I got ended up on the phone with him, and he I said, "What do you need?" He said, "I need to not be on on this truck." So we went back to the chief and said, look, he needs to not be on the truck right now. And the chief was like, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's a good chief. That's a good chief. Yeah. Um, And my guess is that we kept him off the truck for a couple of days. He stayed at the, at the station, right. He was still part of of the job. He wasn't being ostracized. He wasn't being pushed to go do some menial job and, and, and ridiculed. Um, That's what we need to be doing. Yeah, I know it's going to cost us more money, but in the long run, keeping our firefighters and our EMTs and our police officers in their jobs is going to save us a lot of money.
3: Yes, absolutely. Because, and again, you know, if that's if that's what he needed at that particular time, and then was able to actually go out and on the truck, eventually, guess what? He's much healthier for it for just taking okay. that time to be able to allow himself to to heal from what he needed to what he needed in, in in that time it's absolutely i that's what we need to be doing for sure yeah. yeah so there's
2: so many things there's if you guys gave me a magic wand and said sarah you don't have to worry about money you don't have to worry about the old school mentality go in and fix it mm-hmm. i would say because i'm painfully honest i can't fix it mm-hmm. okay because yeah. there's just things that 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 these folks are going to see and be exposed to that we can't stop. Yes. Um, sometimes that impact. Okay. So I can't fix it, but we could make it so much better and yeah. so much less harmful. We could. Re- I believe this. I really. And other people might say I'm wrong, and they but they could be right. But I truly believe in my heart that we could greatly reduce the number of of first responders who are retiring due to trauma.
3: Yeah. Yes. What about um, stigma? Let's talk stigma um within first response she's smiling to the camera at me let's talk stigma within departments um like what does that mean um, to you well
2: i'm smiling because i personally don't like the word stigma Mm. um and the reason i don't like it is it when we say stigma it's like this thing that just exists um and i don't think that's the case i don't think it's this thing that just exists i think what we're really talking about is prejudice and discrimination whoa and when you change it And you move away from stigma because nobody owns stigma and you make it about the prejudice and the discrimination that people who are suffering from a mental health challenge face there's people who own that there's people who are accountable for that um is it the chief is it the culture of the whole department is it supervisors or lieutenants like so there's no one thing that we can do um but i can tell you you know i have some departments that are doing phenomenal work and It's not that there's not stigma. It's that those departments are not discriminating against people, and they're not punishing them, Mm. and they're not demoting them, and they're not targeting them. And if you say you're going to on-site, there's no fallout from it, and everybody knows it. They don't have the they don't have the same problem that you're talking about in those departments. Not yeah. not not like we see in other departments, right? Yeah. Wow. So to me, I think we have to put the onus where it belongs, which is that it's about prejudice and discrimination against people um, who often are experiencing a, a job related injury, yeah. which is post traumatic stress. Yeah. Um, wow. Right. But also, even when someone doesn't have post traumatic stress, there's the long term wear and tear of this work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That just it it just wears away at that that soul or that essence of who the person is and who they want to be. Um, And don't get me wrong. Listen, there's bad police officers. They started off bad. There's bad firefighters. They started off bad. There's bad priests who started off bad. There's bad school teachers who started off bad. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there aren't ever bad people in the work, but I don't think that's most of them. I think that's like a very tiny number. Um, and that the majority of what we're seeing is people who, because of the system and because of the nature of the work, uh have experienced moral injuries and and post-traumatic stress. Yes. And we need to take better care of
0: them.
3: Yeah. I think that a lot of interviews that I've been, you know, had the privilege of, you know, speaking with some first responders. Um, you know, I've heard them like going back to the day of coming out of the academy, right? And they're all Fit as a fiddle, and they're all right. Okay, bring on the whoever I need to, the drug lords or whatever, I'm going <laughs> to get them, right? Uh, and the same with the firefighter, bring it all on and, and eager to go, right? Because they have a, 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 a like a service, a selfless service that they want to be a part of, right? And eager um to be a part of it. And then the wear and tear of, Um, experiencing trauma after trauma after trauma. And and there's, you know, I hear it all the time that rock is going in the backpack. You know, there's another rock going in, um, in the backpack. So amongst the, you know, peer to peer within a department, um, I'm I'm gonna use your like, how can we how can we have a first responder feel comfortable?
2: saying linda i could hug you right now this is the question i always want people to uh, ask hug me hug me through the camera <laughs> um <laughs> so
3: um like how can we get a? First, let me tell you my dream oh, oh well tell and me because it's my dream it too this is why we're let doing this
2: you. here's my dream i've had the great privilege of um i did not create this I've i've helped i've been part of facilitating it but i'm not the creator Um, of working with a woman named Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas on something called the Storytellers uh, Retreat. She's part of, she's the founder, actually, of United Suicide Survivors International. And Dr. Sally and I facilitate Storytellers Retreats. So what we do is we bring together groups of people. They spend a couple of days with us. We have a great time. We go for hikes. We cook dinner together. We do all of these great things. Oh, I want to do that. But what we also do is we help people frame their stories. Mm. And sometimes people get through the course and realize that they're not ready to share it and we want them to realize it before they're on a podcast sharing their story, right? We want them to have that realization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they also meet each other and we start to build this peer peer circle. So my dream is to start running these retreats with first responders in Massachusetts and to build myself an army of people like jay Mm. who are willing to come out and willing to share these stories because the reason that the prejudice and discrimination can continue to flourish the way that it does is because people don't share their stories because they're afraid of the prejudice and discrimination yeah but if i could make a group that had that that the strength of numbers and they're willing to go and they're willing to tell those stories. And, and I don't have to worry about them getting picked off one by one because they're going to stand together. They're going to build that wall with each other. Yeah. They're going to hold each other right through it. Um, I really think we could turn this tide. I really believe that. Um, and so my dream is to be doing these um, these storytelling retreats here in Massachusetts with our first responders and to build, um, I'm going to use the word cadre, that cadre of mm-hmm. of First responders, just like Jay, who've been through it, um, who are finding their way through it, yeah. right, but can also get out there and start talking. Because I can go out there as an expert, and I, I hope that I'm a good trainer. I hope that I, I help to make a difference. But, Jay, your story is going to be a lot more powerful than mine, mm. right, because, yeah. because you've lived what they've lived. I yes. haven't. Yes. I've had my own trauma, but I haven't been a first responder and I don't ever pretend to have been. And this is actually exactly why Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas and I um, wrote the series of men's books that you probably saw on my website called guts Frit and grind. Yeah. Right. Because we wanted to get these men's stories out and several of the men in our books are first responders, but we wanted to create a space where these stories could be being told. Um, And it's not just about like, here's all the terrible things that happened to me. Right. Because, too often when people share their story, they just focus on the, the tragedy and the trauma and the right? And it's like, yeah. first of all, not helpful for the storyteller. Second of all, often it's very activating for the listener. It's mm-hmm. not what we're trying to do. Right. When we teach people to tell their story, we teach them, one, how to not activate themselves and their, their listeners, mm-hmm. which is really important. Um, But we also teach them to focus on the journey, what's called the hero's journey. So bring me on that journey so that I, as somebody who's living with what you're talking about, I can learn from you on how to get through this. Mm, Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, So we teach our storytellers how to do that, how to tell the hero's journey. Um, Then they're going to practice with each other. They're going to practice with us. We're going to give them feedback. They're going to practice again. We're going to make them work it um, until they can get it down into like five minutes. Um, And for anyone who's comfortable and ready, we usually try to do videotaping at the end. Uh, But my dream, and I mean this, my dream would be to have 300 of those videos out of the state of Massachusetts of first responders.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear that there's, you know, I always say it takes a village, right, Um, of so many people coming together and speaking out, uh, being advocates and supporting our first responders because they need it, right? And they're out there protecting us every day. And I love that, yes, how can we get these first responders peer-to-peer of being able, within the departments, wherever they are, um, not to be afraid to say, I'm struggling. And because I feel that within the departments right now, right, um, if a first responder, just say a, a good department versus a department that's supportive i won't say good department but a p- department that is supportive if a first responder is struggling and he has also witnessed that someone else also went and saw help and they got support okay. they're also going to feel um that they're going to receive the same the same uh, support right um so it builds confidence in that but if on the other hand the other side of that if a first responder goes to seek help from their administration within the department and they don't receive support and they're penalized mm-hmm. another force responder is also not going to go right and and look for 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 support within the department because they're going to feel that they're going to get the same thing too
2: and, and the consequences is even greater than that yeah when that happens because i've had that happen Um, So, one, you have everyone who saw it who aren't going to seek help, right? right? But also that first responder who has now been penalized, risk for suicide just went up. Yeah. So you may not only just be dealing with that that they are gonna retire early because they've been abused by their by their department. Um, and now everybody else is under this feeling of I can't ever admit that I have a problem because that'll happen to me too. But now we're gonna have a situation where we lose a firefighter or a police officer's suicide. And then what's gonna happen is all of those officers or firefighters who saw that individual be mistreated are gonna hate their chief.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. And so now you're gonna have this huge organizational um, crisis, right? Because the blame that we know comes with suicide will then get targeted towards the people they feel mistreated, that individual who's died. So there are a lot of good reasons for us to treat um, our first responders better and especially to be more uh, supportive of when they need to seek help.
3: Yeah. So while you're waiting on your dream to come true... Um, your manifestation right of bringing this all together yeah she's manifesting you it um, you know bringing this all together like now like you know our listeners our first responders who are listening um, what would you say to them um, to encourage them if you know they think maybe that some of the the, the topics that we've been talking about tonight um, they might resonate Um, that sounds like me what would you say to them to encourage them? Um,
2: Oh, I would say your chiefs and your superior, uh, officers or senior officers, um, are going to hate me when I say this, but I'm going to do it anyway. mm. Um, I tell the story in my, in my Ted talk of finding forgiveness for my dad. Uh, I won't go into it here. If you're interested, you can watch it on my website um, or YouTube, but my dad, um, was a very, 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 very difficult human being and made uh, many decisions that led to him not being part of um, mine and my two brothers' lives. And he ended up coming back, of all things, from South Korea uh, about two years before he died. Um, and I knew when he came back that Blake he was coming here and he was going to die. And I, and I was bitter about it. I was like, really? So you went and like floated around Guam and South Korea and Indonesia and had this luxury life all this time um, while your kids were at home, wishing you were here. Uh, And I, and I was bitter, but I decided that I was going to help my older brother to care for my dad in the last, however long we had. And uh, it was the greatest thing I ever did. Um, and, and I, I did it selfishly. I I did it because I was protecting myself from the guilt I would feel if I didn't do it. Mm. Um, but this really amazing thing happened, which is I started taking my dad on these car rides, um, because at this point he was very, very ill and it was COVID. So you couldn't go really anywhere, but we could go in the car. And he started telling me these stories. Uh, and, and I was recording them. I actually have them all on my phone. Um, So he's telling me these stories, and as I'm listening to all these stories, I found tremendous compassion for my dad that I'd never had. You know, he's telling me the stories of um, what we would certainly call now, back then people might not have, but now we would absolutely say it was abuse, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, I'm pretty confident my father had some sort of, whether it was attention deficit hyperactivity or oppositional defiance, but he was nicknamed Terry the Terrible at three years old, Mm -hmm. three Uh, And ultimately, he was sent off to Catholic schools, boarding schools, uh, at least two of whom have been named in major lawsuits because of the sexual and and physical abuse of the students there. Mm -hmm. And so as I spent all this time driving around with my dad uh, and recording his stories, you know, I learned a lot about him. Uh, And then the time came where he was bedridden. He couldn't go for my car rides anymore. So I would actually sit by his bedside. And I would still record his stories. And I was doing it really because I knew that reminiscing and telling those stories was really good for his mind. And I got up to leave one day and uh, I stopped in the doorway and I said, I love you, dad. And this was not something that he and I said to each other very often at all. Uh, He was not an, I love you guy at all. He was a pretty violent guy. And he said from the bed, You never know when it's the last time, do you, Sarah? And it really struck me because that's why I said it. That's exactly why I said it. Because as I was walking towards the door, I said to myself, I don't know if he'll be here next time. Mm. And that's what made me say, I love you. So I turned around and I sat down with him. And um, I realized something in that moment, which is that Time is our most valuable currency. And too many of us think it's money. It's the truck. It's the house. It's the trip to Disney. It's the clothes. It's the pocketbook. It's whatever. And I don't want to be 77 years old and dying before I realize that the most valuable thing I always had was my time. So the thing that I want to say to all of our first responders, you're working yourselves into the ground. I know they're short-staffed. I know there's pressure. But take that time off. You don't need the new truck. Do the best you can. But time is the most valuable thing you have. Because those kids are going to grow up and they're going to move out. And trust me, I know this. My 27-year-old is in a submarine right now. Mm. You can never get this back. So really, time is the most precious thing any of us have. And that's what I am trying to instill in the first responders. Beautiful. Yeah. I
3: love that. So sort of like um, invest in your energy, right? Of where be, um, I suppose, choosy, right? You get to choose where you invest your energy and not your currency it's like your currency but it's not money right, right. Um, invest in your energy um and where you where you want to put it and for what's important what's really important right. yeah for sure
2: and what's going to be important later right like you might think it's grim but I do think about when when that day comes that I'm laying on my deathbed and I'm thinking back about all of my life you know am I living in a way now that I'll be glad I did then yeah yeah, absolutely.
3: Looking back. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. A lot to think about. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Can I get in and ask you just cuz I know I know I don't I want to be respectful of your time. Um but I want to I had highlighted on here toxic stress. Yeah. Can we talk about that a little bit? Explain that to us. What that means? Sorry.
2: Everybody has stress and sometimes there's even such thing as positive stress. Not all stress is bad. Think about the stress you feel when you're going out on your first date with somebody you think you really like, or the stress you feel when you're going up for promotion, right? Not all stress is bad. Um, and even when stress is negative, it's not always toxic, right? What's really going to make the difference is what's there to help bring it down. Right. How frequently is that stress level happening? How severe is it when it does happen? And what is there to buffer it? Mm. Right. So, you know, if I have. Let's say a firefighter who goes on a call, but is going to go back to the station and be with, you know, a big group of people. Versus a police officer who's going to respond to the exact same thing, but then get in their patrol car and spend the rest of the shift on their own. Which of those people is more apt to experience toxic stress? It's the police officer, right? Now, that's not 100%, right? Because if I have a firefighter who's going back to a very unsupportive department, right, then then that's going to remain really toxic. Um, But it's really about you know, when I think about it, it's about that social buffer, right? Um, it's why more and more officers are, are alone. And and there's some research that suggests that it's actually safer for them to be alone, that they're more alert, right? We're back to that hyper, hyper vigilance and arousal, okay? Um That they're more alert when they're alone. And that may be true, um, but from a toxic stress perspective, Uh, I highly doubt that we're going to find that they're better off being in a patrol car alone. Wow. So again, that brings us back to the power of peer support the power of, um, you know, and I I just want to be clear because in Massachusetts, it seems to me that they refer to what most parts of the country is actually called SISM as peer support. Um, Some peer support is starting to happen within the departments, but the type of peer support that I advocate for they don't just show up when there's been a a potentially traumatic event. They, they are operating all the time. They're always there and they're always training and they're always marketing the peer support program. And they're always available to um, the first responders within that department. Right. So that's really the peer support that I want to see happening. Yeah. And it is is starting to happen in more, more and more departments. Yeah. Uh, But it's, it's been slow.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We hear it all the time that, it is happening and more and more departments are offering it. But we, we want it to be in more departments on a regular basis, right? Checking in on these guys. Again, what you said earlier on in the in the podcast, you said, you know, I don't, I want to know about these guys three months after an incident and six months after an incident, right? So the same with peer support going in there, checking on these guys six months okay. after and check, you know, continually checking and, and how are you doing? You know how okay. how are you doing? That's 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 well. The other thing
2: is they they know them, right? So if all of a sudden, if if I only met Jay um, after you know a, a critical incident happened, and I'm going to meet you for maybe an hour, maybe two hours, right? I don't have anything to gauge it on. But if I work with Jay every day mm. and I see that you know, boy, Jay used to. You know, always be in here smiling and volunteering to cook meals. And you know, he's boy, he's isolating in the in the bedroom all the time now. And he's really been, you know, rude to people. He's so smiling when you're saying out, that. Are you sure you don't know me? <laughs> he's smiling. He's like, what? Does she know me? Right, yeah. but 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 the peer support people are the ones who have that long term you know visual of knowing these folks and being able to see these changes yeah um and so i really 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 advocate for peer support programming in every department
3: yeah like having some of their officers be involved in peer support and be able to yeah offer that support when needed right in the department oh that's right that would be a dream let me tell you all departments having that i mean that that would be that would be good administration implementing that right um, I Listen, believe. and there's,
2: there's, there's, you know, there's unique ways that people can look at it in, in, um, Illinois, the fire service peer support program, it's a statewide program with a phone number. Right. So, you know, maybe, maybe there's no chance that we could ever get every department to do it, even though that would be what we would love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's other types of peer support models that we could be looking at that, that may be, you know, may also be really helpful. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. I love all this conversation. You want to th- chime in there?
1: Well, I'm just, I'm thinking about kind of the, I guess, the contagion element to what we're talking about. Like you talk about, I'll a, 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 a label it a, a toxic work environment, right? All that stuff spreads the negativity. It becomes normal for, for certain members to find themselves isolating. It gets overlooked and... Um, I think that, that this dream that we're talking about, that's the exciting part about this conversation. It, it is going to come true. I, I don't know when, but you can see, um, you know, the culture becoming more aware, and, and that will that will spread too. So, you know, if you come into the firehouse or into the police station and somebody's got a, a broken foot, um, you know, nobody walks by and doesn't notice it. It's not normal. Uh, he or she is, is not... Uh, then, then sent into duty. Um, and in the same way, when when these, um, you know, when these symptoms of a lack of well-being that, that you uh, outlaid very, very clearly and well earlier on when we were talking about soul suffering, somebody, um, you know, is, is becoming short with people that they care about, you know, these little things that are so easy um, to overlook, but when there's a cluster of them, it's so clear that that somebody's suffering or in the case of first responders, they're often like not living their life. uh, They're not able to in accordance with their own values. And that can be very difficult for that culture because it's, it's a calling and they care about serving, um, you know, and and they care about um, being very effective and, and, and doing good things out in the world. So um, I think that what we're talking about is going to happen. I think we're contributing to it right now, and uh, I can't wait to see it happen. I definitely think you guys are contributing to it right now.
3: Oh, thank you. You are too. Um, Again, it takes a village, right? And the more we can um, promote an energy, that it's okay to talk about this stuff openly, openly. And, you know, not feel weak for it, um, especially in, in within a first responder. Um, well, then, yeah, that's my dream is that everyone's going to be talking about it. If they're either with it, with someone within their apartment or sharing the stories, like what what you said, their own stories. Hey, I, that last call did not, or a couple of months ago, I did not feel well and I got help and I'm, feeling better of it you
2: know that's right we have we have to have the narrative that it can get better right that that people can recover because what has happened for too long is that people wait until the situation is dire Mm yeah and then their ability to come back to the work is lower but if we could get this going way earlier people we know people can recover from some of these things
3: Yes. yes absolutely yep yeah, for sure. And we want to avoid, you know, the isolation. We want to help prevent that isolation of getting to that stage where they're isolating and they don't want anyone to know what's what's really going on with them. And also, you know, we want to prevent that crisis. Right. Getting to a crisis situation, you know, and first responders tend to start to hold that all in or won't share it until they really need it when it becomes a crisis situation. Mm-hmm. And we want to we want to help prevent that. Um yes. and, and that awareness and talking about this openly, yeah, we are we are part of it. And um we're very happy to be part of it too. Um and it is gonna happen. Yes. Change. Ma'am. For sure. Yeah. Sarah, whew So it's like you're like blowing my my mind I'm gonna be having to think about all this all night long. <laughs> you're blowing my mind with all this conversation. It's absolutely wonderful, but yes, very needed and it's an honor and a privilege to, to have you on uh, talking with us tonight, talking and letting our listeners hear what you have to say. Um, you know, you're a specialist in your field. Um, you go out to departments. You work with the Department of Public Health. You, you deal with FEMA. You you dealt, you were part of the program for COVID-19. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much that you're involved in um so definitely you are a specialist in your field and uh, we're honored to have you on here tonight um so thank you thank you for coming
2: on i was so honored to be asked by both of you jay thank you for all of your service um you know but also for having the courage to be pushing this conversation and and linda you too you know losing a loved one and especially losing a child is uh one of the hardest things we can ever go through in our lives. And so, you know, the honor is all mine. I'm really grateful
3: that you asked me to be part of your podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah.
0: Sarah is a master in suicide prevention and awareness. She's presented her work at state, national, and international suicide prevention conferences. Sarah shared with us how she's witnessed first responders having human moments during very inhumane experiences. How over time, first responders can become desensitized by the work that they do. How that can sometimes lead to what she calls soul exhaustion, and the importance for this culture to be mindful of increasing their compassion fatigue. She's contracted by the Mass Department of Public Health to teach police departments about toxic stress and to train them in suicide prevention and psychological first aid. These trainings are funded by the Department of Mental Health, provided at no cost to the organization. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at saragare.com. Until next time. Until next time.